0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You were so concerned about the financial plight of the Holy See that you closed your minds to the eventual consequences. I realize that extreme measures usually have to be taken to ward off bankruptcy. But as I've said before and repeat again, when when bargains with a ruthless dictator, we must be prepared to face a bitter fate. To have given Mussolini the right to say who may or may not become a bishop of Holy Mother Church was a grave mistake. Sister Pascalina Lienert to Cardinal Pacelli, 1931. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Episode 4.25 Pascalina and Leinhardt, dealing with devils. Last time, we finished the extraordinary story of the 17th century Queen Christina of Sweden, charting her journey from child ruler of a northern Protestant kingdom to being a Catholic exile, troublemaker, and murderer in the courts of Rome and France. Today, we will jump forward several hundred years into the 20th century, where we find a woman who sat at the right hand of the papacy during some of its darkest days in modern times. We're on the finishing stretch now, folks. Just two more episodes to go. As usual, if you'd like to support the podcast, then you can do so at patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep the show going. And as you may have seen in the news, a dollar now goes a long way in the UK. So thank you very much for that. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Josephina Lienhardt was born in a village outside of Munich on the 25th of August 1884 to a poor rural farming family. Life was hard, with her parents and 11 siblings hovering on the poverty line. Food was never taken for granted in the Lienhardt house. Her family was religious. They said their prayers and were all raised in the Catholic faith. But from an early age, George and Maria Lenart realised their daughter was different. At the age of five, she insisted on extra prayers at the start of the day, and then more, and then more. What started as delight in her devotions promptly turned to irritation. While her brothers laboured outside, Josephina stayed with her mother and sisters in the home, a restriction that she chafed under. She asked her mother why she was not allowed to rise at half past four in the morning and work in the fields with her brothers. Quote, when did Jesus say that women and girls should not be in the fields? This was typical of the young Josephina. She was determined, precocious, and unwilling to take no for an answer. She persisted in her demands to work with her brothers and was a hard worker. It would be wrong, though, to call her a typical tomboy she was pretty, well turned out, the picture of femininity. While her siblings were often caked in mud and dust, she worked hard to ensure that her clothes were clean and pressed. While she demanded to be allowed to join in with the boys, she also partook in more traditionally feminine tasks like sewing and cooking, two tasks that particularly appealed to her perfectionism and need for things to be done just so. She was nicknamed the Mother Superior by her siblings, who got used to being bossed and ordered around by their forthright sister. The same fate befell her classmates at school. The nuns that taught her didn't take well to her manner, finding her insolent and just impossible. That didn't stop them, though, from awarding her top grades. It was clear that she was destined for greater things than the family farm. In 1910, aged 15, she travelled around 100 miles to the village of Omeramagal to see their passion play. This was, and still is, a huge production, put on every 10 years since the Thirty Years' War, and involved everyone in the village, along with hundreds of other actors and technicians. The play depicts the last days in the life of Jesus, from his entry into Jerusalem, through the crucifixion, to the resurrection and apotheosis. She had always been devout, but this performance so profoundly moved her that she announced to her family that she wanted to take holy orders and become a nun. This was quite a shock. Josephina was headstrong, questioning and impulsive, Hardly traits one normally associates with nuns. Her parents were upset and refused to let her go, or even discuss it with her. They should have known better. Josephina was not someone you could filibuster, someone you could just hope would move on. Without their blessing, she left the farm, travelling alone with nothing to her name. It was an extraordinarily courageous decision for one so young, but as we'll see, not one that was at all out of character. Life as a novice nun at the Teaching Sisters of the Holy Cross at al was hard, but Josephina was used to hardship. She never left the convent's walls. Her life was defined by rigid rules and required obedience. She was forced to keep record of every infraction, no matter how trivial. Forgetting how to blow out a candle. Infraction. Speaking after the bell, infraction. Letting a door slam, an infraction. Standards were high and unyielding. At first she struggled to see the point of these rules, but her disobedience was quickly beaten out of her, and she soon came to respect the stern mother superior. Indeed, she saw a lot of herself in her, and instead of rebelling, sought to emulate her example. After four years, she completed her training and took her final vows. She renounced her family and all ties to former life, including her name. She was no longer Josephina Lienart. She was now Sister Pascalina, a name derived from the Hebrew word for Easter. Her journey had begun with the Passion. Now her new life would begin with the Resurrection. She was sent to Stella Maris in the Swiss Alps, a retreat for sick clergy. She worked day and night there, nursing men suffering from illness and mental torment. She took temperatures, carried meals and changed bedpans. She listened to her charges and gave them comfort. She had next to no time for herself. It was a life of selfless service. While the First World War raged throughout Europe, she would have seen very little of it. In 1917, a 41-year-old Italian bishop came to Stella Maris. His name was Eugenio Pacelli, and he had what the Vatican passed for star power. He was a power broker in the Pope's inner circle, a mystic with piercing eyes and arresting features. Since the outbreak of the war, Pacelli had been at the heart of the Vatican's attempts to end it he oversaw one of the world's first humanitarian programmes to fund food and medicine for civilians caught up in the conflict. This was all on top of other duties, which included a refresh of the canon law code. In short, he had quite a lot on, and was very well known in Catholic circles. This punishing schedule, though, had taken its toll, and the man who arrived in Stella Maris looked, to be frank, broken. As the most prominent clergyman at Stella Maris, he was assigned its best nurse, and that, at the time, was Sister Pascalina. Pacelli was not an easy patient to deal with. Most of the men she had treated thus far had been fairly easygoing, enjoying their convalescence in this peaceful corner of a war-torn continent. Pacelli was different. He was particular, a workaholic, He was a serious man, and though he had suffered a mental breakdown, this did not stop him from requiring that certain standards be kept. He made endless demands on her time. She cleaned and pressed his clothes, and he insisted on instant attention whenever he desired it. But, in return, he accepted her help and did what she asked. She insisted he ate properly, exercised regularly, took care of himself in a way he had not managed to do throughout his years of diplomatic and humanitarian work. But above all, she listened, and this attention produced a marked improvement. After a few months in the retreat, Pacelli left, and Pasqualea probably thought nothing of it. There were more patients to attend to, more duties to perform. But then, three months later, she was made an offer she could not refuse. Pacelli had used his sway to organise a transfer for her to keep house for him in Munich, where he was serving as the papal nuncio to Bavaria. This was a move to the big time. As a born and bred Bavarian, Munich was a dream posting for Pasqualina, And when she arrived at the nunciature, she must have been looking forward to running such an important household. However, the staff that was already there didn't exactly welcome her. She took one look at the place and saw it for what it was. A dirty, dusty residence where the staff had gotten used to low standards. This would not do. But everyone had gotten used to the way things had been done before. They thought this young outsider was being unreasonable, her demands impossible to fulfil. They tried ignoring her, but that didn't work they tried offering Pacelli an ultimatum. Either she went, or they would. When he talked to Pascina about it, she insisted that not only were her standards achievable, but that she could do it by herself if needs be, without their quote-unquote help. He was about to go away for a few weeks, so took her up on her offer. And when he came back, he was amazed by what he saw. The place was spotless. Every floor was scrubbed, Every piece of furniture polished. Every clothing item looked as if it were brand new. Every piece of cutlery, crockery and glassware gleamed. And she had done it all by herself. Once more she had proven her worth and Pacelli would not hear any more complaints from his lazy staff. Pasqualina was in charge and spoke with his voice. She not only ran the household but supported his humanitarian work as well. The Allied blockade of Germany caused substantial food shortages, which did not end even after the war ended. Revolution was in the air. The streets were filled with poor, starving people, many of them ex servicemen, many of them still had their guns. Communists, inspired by the revolution in Russia, seized control of the city, proclaiming the Soviet Republic of Bavaria. Most diplomats fled, but Pacelli stayed and so Pascalina stayed. These communists had no love for the church, and in April 1919, the nunciature was stormed by an armed Bolshevik mob. She was by his side when, in front of a sea of rifles and pistols, he confronted the home invaders, and demanded that they leave. It must have been absolutely terrifying, but worse was to come. Once they left, Pacelli collapsed, the stress of standing up to this bloodthirsty, revolutionary mob was too much for him, and he suffered another nervous breakdown. He went back to Stella Maris, where Pascalina once more nursed him back to health. And, not long after, they returned to Munich. The communists were fought off, but the memory of their short-lived reign of terror lingered in Pacelli. Late one night in 1919, a few months later, there was a knock at the door. Pasquena answered it, greeting a young man, a former corporal who came recommended by the former German army commander, General Ludendorff. She took him to see Pacelli, who listened to his denunciations of atheistic communism, and gave him money to help him continue his struggle. Go, quell the devil's works, help spread the work of almighty God, Pacelli told the man, sending him on his way. That young man was Adolf Hitler. In 1925, Pacelli was promoted to be the papal nuncio for the whole of Germany meaning that his household, including, of course, Pasqualina, would be moving to Berlin. If the move to Munich had been a jump to the big time for her, then this transfer would be the same for Pacelli. He was now mixing in the highest social and diplomatic circles. His life of one of fancy drinks parties and receptions. And, of course, he was expected to throw them himself from time to time. Pacelli was a naturally austere man, but he threw himself into this new scene with gusto, and Pasqualina rose to the occasion to support him. She was now living the life of a nun, a mistress of a busy household, a cook, and a housekeeper. Just one of those roles would be enough to keep any normal person busy, not to mention the high standards and meticulous attention to detail that she insisted upon. Everything from the organisation of the parties, the selection of musicians, to the make of the guest list fell under her watchful eye. It's a wonder she found any time to sleep. But the most important of these duties, in her eyes, was her duty of care for Pacelli himself. He was the picture of evincularity to Berlin society, but once the doors had closed and everyone had gone home, she saw a very different man he would disappear inside himself, become a recluse and refuse to see anyone. She knew his mental health struggles well, and was well-versed in giving him the space he needed to recover, but also not letting himself descend into a depressive fugue. Pacelli's biographer, Gerard Noel, describes their relationship as being deeply platonically intimate. They spent a huge amount of time together, with Pasqualina acting as a combined mother, servant and confidant. She knew when to chide, when to soothe, when to treat. They were similar people with similar tastes, and so she knew how to cater for him. For the most part, though, Pacelli kept the big secrets from even Pasqualina. But even that wall would eventually be breached. The Catholic Church was in crisis and had been in that state for some time. When Italy was unified under a single government and king in 1871, it did so in the face of intractable opposition from the papacy. Remember that the Pope had not just been the head of the Catholic Church, but also a monarch of a great swathe of central Italy. Risorgimento and unification had conquered those territories, and the papacy responded to this defeat by putting its fingers in its ears and going la 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 la. It refused to recognise the new Kingdom of Italy and banned Italian Catholics from participating actively in politics. This policy meant it had no influence or say in what the government was doing, nor were any pro-people politicians able to run for election. This left the new Italian Parliament to anti-clerical forces, and that wasn't good. So, one night... Bocelli invited Pasquina into his rooms in a state of deep concern. The Catholic Church, he said, was totally broke. It had lost most of its revenue streams and it needed help. Bocelli had welcomed the seizure of power by the fascist leader Benito Mussolini, hoping that he would be a friend to the church, but in a shock turn of events, he had turned out to be duplicitous. The dictator of Italy drove a hard bargain he knew that the Catholic Church, while weakened, was a potential locus of opposition. If he could bring them on side, while it was at its weakest, he could gain a great deal of prestige and secure himself in power. The resulting Lateran Treaty, signed in 1929, the negotiations for which Pacelli was highly involved, saved the finances of the Catholic Church. It received nearly a $100 million from the Italian government a huge sum for the time, secured the sovereignty of a new state called Vatican City within Rome, and established Catholicism as the state religion of Italy. But at what cost? Catholic clergy had to swear oaths of loyalty to Mussolini, and he reserved the right to confirm appointments for all Italian cardinals, bishops, and priests the Pope had essentially surrendered the sovereignty and the soul of the Church to a man who held no love for it, who would sacrifice it without a thought if it would serve his ends. Pasolina warned Pacelli against it. Quote, a man like Mussolini cannot be trusted, she warned him. But to Pacelli, this deal with the devil was one that had to be done. And in any case, he told Pasolini. Mussolini is the most anti-communist politician in Italy. The enemy of God's enemy must be our friend. Later that year, Pacelli got another promotion, this time to be the Vatican Secretary of State. This was another big move. He was about to become the Pope's right-hand man, the second most important person in the whole Catholic Church. But before Pasquena could start packing her bags, her boss dropped a bombshell. She would not be coming with him. This promotion was a huge deal for him and he could not afford even the hint of a whisper of impropriety. A pretty, devoted woman working in his household would surely arouse suspicion of mischief. Pasquena was furious. You need me, she shouted at him. But he was intractable she and his entire household staff would remain in Germany. If the staff in Berlin thought the Pasolena was a nightmare boss before, she reached a whole other level once Bocelli left. She threw herself into work, but there is only so many times a fork can be polished that floors can be scrubbed. Not to mention that Germany, in the wake of the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression, was hardly a pleasant place to live. She wrote to her a few times, but not as often as she would have liked. He invited her to go skiing with him in the Alps, but he was called back to Rome after only a few days. It was all too much for Pascellina, so she decided to take matters into her own hands. Without permission, she left Germany, crossed the Alps, and arrived at Pacelli's residence. There, she was greeted by his sister, Elisabetta, who had taken on her role as housekeeper and head of the household. Elisabetta took pity on her and allowed her to stay and invited her to join the household, but almost instantly regretted it. Pasqualina was incapable of deferring to anyone and was instantly bossing people around, including Elisabetta. Eventually, she would give up altogether the antics of this impossible woman leaving Pasqualina once more, in charge in all but name. Pacelli's new role and responsibilities kept him very busy, and did not leave much time for Pasqualina. so she sought out others to keep her occupied in those few hours she was not keeping house. She struck up a particular friendship with one of Pacelli's allies, an American priest called Francis Spellman. He worked in the Vatican's press office, and she acted as his part-time assistant, typing out articles and passing on news to the press corps. The Vatican was a cold place, and I don't mean the weather. There were almost no other women living there, and most of her fellow staff viewed her with deep suspicion. They knew that she was in favour, that she had a special relationship with Pacelli. But instead of trying to exploit it for their own ends they simmered with jealousy. When Pacelli called upon Pasqualina for counsel, it was usually concerning matters with Mussolini. As Pasqualina had predicted, the Duce was trying to impose his own appointees to high office on the Vatican and was abusing the treaty he had only just signed. Pasqualina could not resist telling I told you so. Indeed, I read her response to Pacelli in the intro to this episode. Pacelli was no fascist, and he looked to Pastelina for advice and strength in his battles with Mussolini. She was not his only confidant, he looked in many places for advice. But she was different from everyone else. She was an outsider in the Vatican. She existed outside the traditional structures and ways of thinking. She had been with him longer than any of them. She knew him better than he even knew himself and she was honest with him, sometimes bluntly so. Powerful men are surrounded by yes-men, but Pasqualina would never be that for Pacelli. He once said to her, quote, At times it is most difficult, even embarrassing to me, to hear your harsh words. But after my boiling blood has cooled down, I always know how right you are. She hated Mussolini but agreed with pacelli and the Pope that an understanding had to be reached between him and the Vatican. Indeed, she held her nose and encouraged Pope Pius to meet with Il Duce in February 1932. At this meeting, they reached an accord. Mussolini would stop breaking the Lateran Treaty and, in return, the Pope would drop his public opposition to fascism. It was yet another deal with the devil – and would see peace reign between Pope and dictator for a decade. This all brought Pascalina to the attention of Pope Pius XI. Though she had been at the Vatican for over a year, they had never before come face to face. One day, she came across a proposed speech for the Pope on Bocelli's desk. Her brow furrowed as she read it. It contained several errors in obscure matters of dogma, that the litany of officials that had read it thus far had missed. She shot off a memo to Pacelli with an overload of corrections, and it wound up on the Pope's desk. Pius was so impressed that he invited her for an audience. She was shaking with nerves as the Pope praised her, saying, quote, I shall chastise his eminence, Cardinal Pacelli, for having you work in the kitchen. Better use should be made of your mind. This would be a massive promotion for her. She would now be joining Pacelli's secretariat. She would be the only woman there amongst a team of highly trained clerics and diplomats. Most would have expected her to know her place, to knuckle down, stay out of sight and do what she was told. But we all know that wasn't her style. She installed herself at a huge desk right by the cardinal's door and immediately became a savage guard dog. No one could see him without her permission. You had to get an appointment, and to get one, you had to see her. If she thought your work was substandard, she would send it back. It was her way or no way. There were numerous objections, but Pascalina was resolute and had the full backing of Pacelli when he received complaints, he said, remember the golden rule the good sisters taught us all in school? When we conduct ourselves properly, there is no problem. In 1936, Pacelli was organising an historic trip. He was to become the highest ranking member of the Catholic Church to ever visit the United States of America, and he was going to take Pasqualina with him. Pope Pius was now in his 80s, and his mind had turned to the future. He had long groomed Pacelli to be his successor, and this trip was seen as a great way to further introduce him to the world. He had already travelled across Europe, and in 1934 had gone to South America, but this was the first time that he had brought Pasquale with him. Relations between the Holy See and the United States had been, let's say, rocky a Detroit priest called Father Coughlin was launching weekly radio tirades against President Roosevelt's New Deal, turning millions of American Catholics against the White House's flagship policy. The Catholic hierarchy in the United States held no love for this insurgent priest, but he held a great deal of sway amongst the rank and file. This trip then was all about rebuilding relations with the White House, securing recognition for the Vatican silencing Coughlin, all without alienating his supporters. They crossed the Atlantic on an Italian luxury liner called the Count of Savoy, but in very different states of luxury. Pacelli and Pascalina holidayed together before, but this was a high-profile trip and the eyes of the press corps were upon them. So while Pacelli travelled in first class, pasqualina was hidden away below decks. She spent her time writing memos for Pacelli on all aspects of American culture. There were briefings on Bing Crosby, the 1936 Baseball World Series, which was an all-New York affair between the Giants and the Yankees, and even another entitled American Humour. Apparently, knock-knock jokes were big in America in the 1930s. Their arrival in New York Harbour was like nothing Pascalino would ever have experienced. The Hudson was crammed with boats filled with onlookers and waving the white and yellow colours of the Vatican. A large portion of the US Navy fired an ear-splitting salute, while fireboats unleashed their hoses in welcome. Pasolena scribbled down in her diary, quote, I feel very happy and excited, like I am 15 again, back in Munich during the glory days of Oktoberfest. There is Radio City and the Waldorf Astoria, I see the Empire State Building, too. It is tall and straight, like his eminence. a great sight. Pascalina accompanied Pacelli everywhere he went in New York. The reason he gave for including her in his meetings was that she was there to take notes, but there was another purpose. She was there as an additional witness, as a second voice, in case Prokoflin priests were there to cause mischief. The trip was an enormous success. Pacelli united the nation's bishops against Coughlin and behind the Vatican, and the rogue priest was kicked off the airwaves. He confided in Pasqualina that, quote, The President is grateful that the noisy priests will talk no more. The White House recognition of the Vatican is assured. The euphoria of this successful trip, though, did not long last their return to Europe. The previous year Mussolini had launched a brutal invasion of Abyssinia, modern-day Ethiopia. Tens of thousands of civilians had already been killed, many of them by poison gas attacks unleashed by the Italian air force. Many Italian priests praised the Duce, including the Archbishop of Milan, who hailed Mussolini as, quote, "he who has given Italy to God and God to Italy." Pastelena was furious at this and upbraided the man for forgetting that Christ was the Prince of Peace, not a god of war. But the Vatican did nothing, and Pascalina's fury caused Bocelli to have a crisis of conscience. He wanted to resign in protest, but she talked him out of it. He had the chance to become Pope, possibly very soon. Once in office, he could change things from within. From without, he would have no power at all and the fascists would have free reign. Over the next few years, the Pope, rapidly declining in health, sought a middle path between antagonising Hitler and Mussolini, while keeping a grip on his soul. He was not particularly successful in that, and Catholics in both the Third Reich and Italy were abandoned to the fascists. And this was, of course, nothing on what happened to members of other faiths and minorities. The Vatican's policy of appeasement to save its own skin is one of its most shameful episodes and allowed free reign to appalling atrocities. In February 1939, with Europe on the brink of war, Pascalina and Pacelli were awoken with urgent news. The Pope had died of a heart attack. Their time had come. Their time was now.